We'll just begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us this day to learn your word and to praise you. We ask you, Lord, that as we look into the book of Joel, you'd help us to see the profundity of your scriptures, the perfection of your plan, and the fact that you are coming again to wreak vengeance upon your enemies, but salvation for your people. And we pray, Lord, that we remember these things in these trying times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear ones, it's good to be with you. Happy New Year to everyone here and listening, Gospel of Grace Fellowship. I want to begin by mentioning last week I did give you a homework assignment, and uh, we will be doing that in the next PowerPoint. In other words, um, I only have one slide to finish on this one, and then we'll be transitioning, so we will get that to that today. But I want to finish on this last verse that we didn't cover last time. That was verse 13. And if you remember, we're in Joel chapter 3, where there's this final battle where God has invited all of the nations. And last time we left off with talking about how Christ will bring his holy ones with him. So the judgment of Christ, when he comes to judge the enemies surrounding Jerusalem, will be accompanied by angels. But now we want to see this wine press imagery that's alluded to in Joel 3.13, because that's an imagery that's going to be reiterated by the prophet Isaiah some 150 years later. Listen to what it says, Joel 3.13, it says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now, this imagery here that you have of the winepress The thing that I think is very powerful about it is every Israelite would have readily have understood it. And the power of the metaphor is that here the wine, grapes, are obviously helpless to those who are crushing them. And so in the same way, the enemies of God are like the grapes, and they are absolutely helpless against the Holy One of Israel. He can do what he wants to his enemies. His power to humanity is like that of a person treading down the grapes in a, a wine vat. That's the imagery. Now, what's interesting is this is a passage that comes up over and over in the scriptures. And in fact, it's part of our battle hymn of the Republic. Most of you have probably heard that song sung. I remember we always had to sing it in grade school years ago. And at the time, I never knew where it came from. And then later when I became a Christian... I learned that it came from Isaiah 63, specifically in Joel 3. But let's look at Isaiah 63. I want you to see how Isaiah uses this years later, the same imagery, and it still has to do with the wrath of God and specifically the coming Messiah. So think about when you look at Joel 3, written in the 9th century, the winepress imagery, we know it applies to the Messiah, but at the time that that was written, perhaps they didn't realize that. They knew that God would intervene, But when you get to Isaiah, it becomes very clear that it's this suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who's also the conquering king in the latter chapters of Isaiah. So this suffering servant isn't just going to suffer for sins. He's going to be raised up. Remember, we saw the evidence of that in Isaiah 53. God would prolong his days, that he would see his seed. So he was going to be raised from the dead. Well, here in Isaiah 63, he's the coming one, the coming conqueror. And what I love about Isaiah 63, think of the setting. There's a dialogue between a watchman on the wall in Jerusalem. And what he sees is someone who's coming toward him who's stained in his garments, and they're all stained red. And so it's really a dialogue between 
this watchman on the wall and the coming Messiah. And it's used, this dialogue, to invite you into listening, into hearing what's going to happen in the last days. Isaiah 63, 1 through 4, here's the watchman's question. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? Now, stop there for just a moment. Why Edom and why Basra? Well, Edom, of course, is the homeland of Esau. Remember, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so there's enmity throughout all of history in the Old Testament between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. And so Edom then, therefore, represents the prototypical enemy of God. Um, how many in here know that when the Vikings play the Packers, there's a, it's, it's, if we beat the Packers, that's like my Super Bowl. Okay? <laughs> I'm like, that's, I don't need to see anything more. If we beat them once for the season, I'm done. I'm, I'm good. But why? Because there's a rivalry. Well, think of that rivalry between Jacob and Esau. That's how Edom represents the prototypical enemy of God. Okay? Now, why Basra? Basra was their capital. So the prototypical enemy of God, you have this Messiah conquering king figure who's coming from their capital. That means he's done some business. He didn't just go to a, you know, go just across their border a couple feet. He's coming from their capital. In other words, the seat of power. And so listen to what it says. It says, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Now listen to the reply. This is the Messiah speaking. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wow. Mighty to save. Who is Jesus? What is his name? Yeshua. Yahweh saves. This is the Messiah. The suffering servant raised from the dead who is now judging his enemies. Well, now the next question. Verse 2. Why is your apparel red? Now, stop there for just a moment. Notice the term red, adom. Well, notice in verse 1, he's coming, the Messiah, from Edom, which is Edom. So there's a playoff of words. Edom, Edom, sounds a lot like Adom, red. Now, that should bring us back to Genesis 25, 30. Do you remember that's where Esau sold his birthright for what? The red stuff. Give me a little bit of that Adom, the red stuff. Well, so where does he settle? He settles in the red place. And you know what? If you go to Israel, Edom looks red. It's red shaded. So you have Esau, the, the founder of the red people. They live in the place that looks red. He sold his birthright for the red stew. And now Christ is coming from that area, and he's stained what? He's stained red. You see the imagery? It's piling up. Uh, Genesis 25:30. Yep. Okay, so notice the question. He says, and your garments are like the one who's tread out the wine press. And then in verse 3, here's the response by the Messiah. I have trodden the wine through alone, and from the peoples there was no one with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. So notice the Messiah, he's claiming that, look, I judged my enemies. That's where I came from. And notice he did it alone. He didn't need our help. Do you remember John the Baptist? He said in his ministry, I must decrease so that he may increase. And a lot of times people ask me, 
in this troubling time, you look at America may go Marxist. And it's very disturbing. But here's what I want to encourage you with. At the end of time, when the Messiah returns, he fights for Israel alone. He's not going to have the help of the United States military. It's all the nations are going to gather against Israel. So one piece of encouragement I may give you is we may decrease as a nation, but it's so that he may increase. There's going to be no one with him when he defends the the homeland of Israel, his people, us. He does it himself. The other thing I'm... Oh, yeah, Bob. On that note... Well, maybe I'm loud enough to pick up in your mic. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. We got Carly's coming. We talked about this on the phone. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Most people don't know it, but that battle hymn is a post-millennial song. Exactly. I've got the lyrics. We'll actually read through it. I'll just read it out loud in a minute. It's post-post-millennial. Yeah. Yeah. we were going to create a millennium in America. That's, that's our big national heresy. Right. Is post-millennialism. Yeah. And both the conservatives and the liberals believe it. Yeah. Okay, they're going to have wealth redistributing redistrib- dis- to eradicate all poverty so everybody's going to have it great. Right. That'll create the millennium. And the other would be we're going to wipe out the evildoers right. and bring the millennium. But as a matter of fact, the millennium is not coming to America. That's Finney right. said it would. Wow. Finney said if we worked harder, we'd bring the millennium to America. Wow. And the idea was the millennium will come to America, and then the rest of the world will see it and want to be part of it. Yeah. yeah. So that's our big national American lie. Yeah. Wow. Well said. Okay. Now, in Isaiah 61... I was going to bring that up. Yes. Okay, well, I don't want to. <laughs> no, 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 that's that. good. I'm glad. That's great. You and I you think so mind? much alike. That's awesome. Either we're both crazy or we're both astute. <laughs> I don't know. But Isaiah 61, oh. uh, Jesus came into Nazareth and announced the Spirit of the Lord upon me and so on, yeah. citing Isaiah 61. And I was talking about this in my Sunday school class a while back, but he stopped. Yes. He stops to proclaim the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. But he doesn't say anything about the second half of verse 2, the day of our God's vengeance. Amen. He doesn't cite that because that doesn't happen till the end. Amen. Well said. That's exactly, that's an astute reading. You get free coffee, Bob. <laughs> no, it's very good. In fact, I have that right in my notes. So everyone realizes what Bob is saying is in Isaiah 61, here Jesus He comes into his hometown synagogue. It's his turn to preach. There is some debate as to whether or not when he opens the scroll, I believe the best evidence suggests that it was on a schedule. So in other words, when Jesus comes in, it's not that he's thumbing through and says, well, you know what, I think I'll pick Isaiah 61. I think that'll be my text for the day. I'll choose that one. No, that's the reading of the day. And it's about him. He's the one who is anointed by Yahweh. He's the anointed one. It's the Messiah. It's about him. But like Bob is astutely pointing out is, do you remember he talks about the year of redemption, but then he stops because the rest of the verse is about the vengeance of the Lord. Well, his, like Bob's saying, his first advent was about redemption. His second advent is about vengeance. So he leaves vengeance out at that point. But here you again see it in Isaiah 63, two chapters later, that now it's put together. At the second coming of Christ, it's redemption for us because he's going to save us. 
but it's judgment upon the enemies of God. And so isn't that beautiful? It's put together again here in Isaiah 63. Now, I saw somebody had a question. Yes, Brian. Uh, I, I want to say that uh, I agree with what you said, that when Jesus got up to the scroll yeah. and he went, he didn't go through it. It, it just happened to be that that was the reading uh, yeah. for that particular day. And I, I want to agree with it because when we look at other statements of God's fullness of time, that God's providence would play into that. It's not coincidental or anything like that. Right. It, 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 as God looks down, that's the way it was. Yeah. It, it was, it was going to be that way. Right, amen. And the reason I say that I think he, he finds that passage is because in the sources that I had, what they would do is they'd have a scheduled reading. They would have one from Tanakh. They would have one from the Torah. They would have one from the Navaim and the Kathavim, that is the prophets and the writings as well. And, and then some synagogues would maybe just have one from Torah and one from the prophets. But they would be on a schedule. And so... And again, that was the way it was at least 150 years after Christ. That was the evidence. So they're suggesting that that's probably the way it was during the time of Christ as well. So I would think that that's what was going on. So think about it. Jesus doesn't go to the scroll and just thumbs through it. I think that that's kind of the image I had when I was a younger Christian. But no, the image is he comes up, and that's the assigned reading, and it's, it's all about him. So beautiful. Let me read to you the Battle Hymn of the Republic this was written in the 19th century. I want to allude to what Bob was talking about, this post-millennialism. Listen to this. You've all heard the song, but here's the lyrics. Battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the, grap, the, excuse me, the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And then, of course, you remember the glory, glory, hallelujah. Well, I want you to think about those were words that were sung in the 19th century by Christians. These were believers in Jesus Christ who believed that in America, through human effort, we could bring about the kingdom of God. Now, Bob had actually given me a book years ago. It's called Hellfire Nation. One of the beliefs that Christians had in America was because they would bring about the kingdom. They believed that the kingdom would come to America and therefore... If we were like Israel, one of the tasks was to find out who the Canaanites were and wipe them out. Why? Because that's what God asked Israel to do. So you can see all of a sudden anyone who is the infidel becomes the Canaanites and it leads to a lot of warfare. So here's my point. If we don't get our eschatology right, it leads to a lot of problems. Think about um, the George Bush family. I love the, the Bushes, by and large, but they claim to be believers, and yet they don't have an eschatology that comports with Scripture. Uh, George W. Bush went to a Methodist church. Listen to what the Methodist church says about the rapture. I went to their own website, and their website says this. It says this regarding the rapture. It says, you will not find any teaching about the rapture and its related belief in the scriptures. They said, what is our teaching regarding the rapture? In short, we don't believe in it. That's right from their website. Now, the difficulty, of course, with not believing the rapture is it's clearly taught in scripture. The term harpazo, the verb, is used in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 for the snatching up of believers. 
Okay? Now, it's true the term rapture is our English uh, rendering of that. It's actually a Latin phrase, rapturo, from the Latin Vulgate, but it's translating harpazo. Uh, do you remember when Philip was preaching in Samaria and all of a sudden he snatched away miraculously and brought to a whole other location? That's harpazo. Okay, so certainly the data is in the scriptures. There are raptures. Philip was raptured, not, of, not to heaven and given his resurrection, but harpazo is used. And so I don't know how they get away with just saying that they don't believe in it when it's clearly taught in scripture. So here's my point. When you look around the United States and you wonder, well, how can people who claim to be Christians go along with the one world order and the building of Babylon that we see coming down the pike? It's because their eschatology is so messed up. So eschatology really matters. If you believe that you're going to bring about the kingdom here and now, and that all of that stuff in Revelation about the building of Babylon, a one world order, just think if you thought that that was just a bunch of nonsense. All of a sudden, you basically take the book of Revelation and you excise it out of your Bible. It's just gone. And so that's why they have such a misunderstanding when it comes to policy, and the way to govern. They don't, they don't understand those things. Yes, Eric. It, it gets even worse than that. I was up at a, uh, I was hearing uh, up at a Methodist church up in Sartell, some friends of mine told me that there was going to be a Muslim teaching the flock about Islam. And so I immediately went up there, and uh, we had my friend who's a former Muslim, who's a Christian, he was there, and we wanted to keep a low profile, you know, and all of that. Well, at the first meeting, it was a series of eight things, and so I, w- I behaved myself pretty well uh, and tried to keep a low profile. And then, but I said enough at that first meeting so that the second one, they, really, they had a handler for me. Uh, in other words, oh. this, was, this was like what they call a, a Delphi meeting. They had everybody at little tables. And, and so anyone that was going to cause trouble, you know, they had somebody there. So they had this guy who was an elder at the uh, Methodist church. And he just talked my ear off before the, before the presentation started. And we were talking about, you know, theology. And he said, I don't like the Old Testament, <laughs> you know. <Wow. laughs> so, in other words, it's even worse than not. Not only is the Book of Revelation out of there, but yeah. at least for this guy, uh, it was you know the Old Testament. So I, I tried to. Wow. I mean, and he was really a classic postmodernist because me- words changed their meanings as oh, we wow. talk. It was it was ridiculous. So yeah, yeah, yeah. wow. Amen. And along with that, postmillennialism has won, and it's very popular in America. Yeah, absolutely. It was almost the, the eschatology of the entire 19th century. Yeah. But it really discounts the sin nature. Absolutely. Because if you believe in the fall and that evil is in the heart of man yeah. and needs to be restrained so that we can live on the earth, then you'll look at civil government's role as to restrain evil. Amen. But if you don't believe in that, then you start believing in all these romantic, idealistic philosophies that came out of Germany. That's right. The very philosophies that led to World War I and World War II. Uh, 
you start believing that, you think, well, you know, human nature is perfectible. Right. And we can have our peace on earth and John Lennon and all this. Yes, right. Yeah, and we can create the millennium. Who needs... Who needs Christ as the king when we can do it ourselves? Amen. Exactly right. So like you're saying, Bob, so you have the post-millennial and the Marxist have something in common. What's the common thread? They're going to build the kingdom. Yeah, the Marxists do it through redistribution of wealth, and the Christian does it through good works. But it's still the same goal. And so do you see all of a sudden why policies between Marxist and post-millennials become very compatible? Yeah, Steve. I just had a thought, though. Um, um, I don't think that the, what the modern church is doing should come as a surprise to us. I mean, basically, we have Bible-based churches everywhere you look. And one of you guys said it a long time ago, the further away we get from Scripture, the more pagan we become. Yeah, I, don't, I don't remember which one did it, but he, I mean, even Jesus himself was, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, he was in a house... And he wouldn't even go out to them because he knew what man was capable of. He's like, I'm not going out there. Right. Well said. Yeah, Steve, answering the post-millennial objection or their doctrinal view is not difficult. My favorite way of doing it is Matthew 24, 21 through 22, because that's where Jesus talks about in those days, if, if they not be cut short, no flesh would survive. Now, remember, post-millennialism is that we Christianize the planet Everything gets better, Christianized, and then all of a sudden Jesus Christ comes to basically just assume the throne that we've built for him and reign peacefully for a thousand years. That's post. So in other words, the millennial, post means the millennium comes after we bring the kingdom. Okay? Well, then why does Jesus say, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive? When he's talking about the last days, specifically the 70th week of Daniel. Well, that doesn't sound like we're going to Christianize the planet. So this isn't easy, or excuse me, this isn't difficult to refute, this idea of post-millennialism. And to me, it would be very difficult to hold on to that view. But again, a lot of these views over history and through the Christian culture, quote-unquote, they're not revealed in Scripture. They're made up by men. Yeah, Jessica. I'm sorry, Carly, we got one up here. Sorry, you're getting your exercise today. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So one of the big post-millennial teachers today is Doug Wilson, and he's kind of gaining a lot of ground. And he's also very prominent in the Christian education movement, especially the classical Christian education movement. And one of his main points is that we need to establish Christendom. And when I was reading that the other night, I thought back to what Dad has been saying. There is no Christendom, and we can't build Christendom through Christian education. But he's also, of course, being post-millennial millennial, a partial preterist. Yes. And so his answer to that Matthew 24 passage is that happened in 70 AD. So can you respond to that for a minute? Absolutely. Let me give you two rebuttals to that. First of all, um, let's just define preterism and he's partial preterist, but let's, what preterism is, is you and I are futurist. We believe the book of Revelation is going to occur in the future. That is Revelations chapter six through 19. Well, actually to the end of the book, A, a preterist would say, no, those events are going to occur, or excuse me, did occur in 70 A.D. Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, is not about the future tribulation, but it's about those events surrounding 70 A.D. The first thing I would say in rebuttal to that, that doctrine is actually a Roman Catholic doctrine. 
The way it came about was when the reformers started claiming the Pope was the Antichrist, and they even went into passages in the book of Revelation where they tried to tie Rome to Babylon. The Catholic Church, to defend themselves, said, well, no, these events aren't future. They happened in 70 A.D., that was their way of getting around it. So the irony is now you have these staunch, quote-unquote, reformed teachers who are borrowing doctrines right from the... So they're going back to they're Rome. They're going to Rome, exactly. The, the second thing, and Bob's actually done really good work. Anybody ever read the article that Bob wrote? It's called... Um, well, I don't know what the title of it is, but I know what it's about. It's all about that phrase where... Remember the phrase... generation. Yeah, one of the, exactly. That's one of the issues is... Jesus talks about this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, the preterist latches onto that, and they say this generation must be the generation that Jesus was speaking to. Therefore, a generation is about 40 years long. It had to happen in 70 AD. It can't be thousands of years later. Bob had an article that is so good because what he showed exegetically is the phrase, this generation, is used as a pejorative to refer to everyone from the time of the beginning of Cain and Abel to the future, whenever that last day is, who are characterized by unbelief. Think of it this way. Remember in Mark 9, you have Jesus' disciples who are unable to cast out the demons because they start relying on their power. And Jesus says, what shall I do with this unbelieving generation? He links his disciples to this generation because they were being characterized by unbelief at the moment. So when you realize that this generation is not about a 40-year span of time, but about everyone who's characterized by unbelief, all of a sudden that objection goes away. So my point is there's no exegetical reason to hold on to the Olivet Discourse being in 70 AD. Yeah. And I can personally attest to the Greek use of this generation as a pejorative. From yes. outside of the Bible, Homer used it that way. Oh, interesting. So, I never knew in classical Greek. Very good. Yes. So I, I've spent two years reading classical Greek texts. And he and used that's, it that way. Yeah, so for example, in Iliad, yeah. Zeus says to Hera, who's his wife slash sister, after she's distracted him and he's turned his focus away from the Trojan War and everything went badly, yeah. your generation has done this. Oh, now, wow. He's of her generation. He doesn't mean the people born at the same time as you. He means people of your ilk. Wow. Very good. So, very good. Very, very astute. Free coffee, too. All you guys are getting free coffee this morning. Yeah. Very good. You know, a passage I was thinking of, does everybody remember in Matthew 23, where Jesus says, upon this generation will come all the blood, from the shedding of the blood of righteous Abel, till the shedding of the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah? Do you know why that's so compelling for this generation, meaning every person that's ever lived in unbelief? The, you and I, the last book of our Old Testament in our English canon, if we look at our Bibles, we have the same Old Testament the Jews have, but they're just in different order. So the last book we have in our Old Testament canon is the prophet Malachi. The Jews have the book of Chronicles, and they put First and Second Chronicles together. Now listen to this carefully. In Matthew 23, when Jesus says, Upon this generation will come all of the blood that was shed from righteous Abel, Genesis 4, all the way to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, Chronicles, that's the extent of the Hebrew canon. And so he's, what he's using that for is to say, every person who's ever lived in unbelief, when I come back, 
to this temple, the wrath that I'm going to be pouring out is on all those who have been in unbelief. What's also interesting about that passage is remember the Roman Catholic Church claims that the Jews didn't have the right canon. Why? Because they didn't have the apocryphal books. Now, the debate about the apocryphal books is not about the New Testament, but about the Old Testament. But isn't it interesting when Jesus says from Zechariah, or excuse me, from the righteous blood of Abel to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, from Genesis to Chronicles, that was the extent of the Hebrew canon. It's another way of showing the Roman Catholic Church, well, Jesus believed that, in fact, that was the scripture limit. In other words, it didn't go from Chronicles to Maccabees or from Genesis to Maccabees. It was from Genesis to Chronicles. That was the extent of the Jewish canon. So right there, Jesus is affirming that the Jews had the right canon. It's implied in what he says. Also, remember, uh, Paul says in Romans 3, what advantage is there in being a Jew? After all, Jews are going to sin and Gentiles sin. What's the difference? Well, he says there's one in every way, for the Jews had the very oracles of God. So Paul was saying, so that's another uh, implication of that Matthew 23. Very important text, but in there, this generation does not refer, and I didn't know that it was used in classical Greek the same way. That's even greater evidence. But it is not used to refer to a time period, but a people that are characterized by unbelief. And that's the answer to the preterist. He uses it to beat us over the head. Okay, now let me show you in Joel here. I want to show you how this is alluded to in the book of Revelation. Now, remember Revelation 14. I know we studied a, a long time ago, but if you recall in Revelation uh, chapter 11, you have the end of the seventh trumpet. So you go from the trumpet judgments, and then you're going to go to the bowl judgments. Remember, you go seals, trumpets, bowls. Well, in Revelation 11, you have the last trumpet. That's going to open up to the last bowl judgments, but there's an interlude. And the interlude goes into Revelation 12, where you have the behind-the-scenes history of what Satan tried to do to Israel. Then you get to Revelation 13. It's behind the scenes as to how the Antichrist comes to power. All of a sudden, you get to Revelation 14, and now you come to the bull judgments. And notice what it says here in Revelation 14, 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud. By the way, this is still before the bull judgments. He was sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. There's the imagery again of reaping. And who is going to do it? It's the son of man. Jesus' favorite self-designation. Jesus refers to himself by the title son of man more than any other title in the Bible. And he does so because he wants to link himself to the messianic prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. He is the one who's going to rule over the world. That's why he links himself to the Son of Man. When he says Son of Man, it's not to show that he's merely a man. He doesn't do it that way. He doesn't say it for that reason. He says it to link himself to the Messianic prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. So he's the one who is going to come and rule, and he is going to pour his wrath upon his enemies. Now, let me pull up my next PowerPoint. I want to get to our homework assignment, if I can. Aha. Because I had some homework for you guys. And what I want to do is I want to read this verse because we're going to continue on in Joel three fourteen through 15 where we see the Lord is going to roar here from Zion. Listen to how the text continues. So in verse 13, we had the reaping. We had the treading out of the wine press by the Messiah. 
Now notice what it says. It says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Now, I want you to notice the multitudes. This is the nations that have surrounded Jerusalem in this final battle. But notice this phrase, they're in the valley of decision. The term there for decision, karutz, does not have to do with our decision as humans to decide whether or not we're going to accept God on his terms or believe in him. But rather, it has to do with his decision about humanity that he has decided to judge his enemies. So this decision is a judicial one, and it shows us that indeed when we talk about being saved by Christ through his imputed righteousness, it really is a judicial idea. It really is. That language is used all the way through the scriptures. So here the judge is going to decide, and the decision is irrevocable. He's going to judge his enemies and they will, in fact, perish. So that's the idea. Now, notice it also says the day of the Lord. Let me pull up my pointer. The day of the Lord is near. The term near there, karov, in Hebrew, the question is, does that mean it's imminent? No, I think the implication in this text is that it is at hand. It's, it's actually occurring. But why does Joel use near? Well, let me show you how he uses karov elsewhere and you're going to see that Joel uses near to show you that it's occurring. That's how he uses it. It's just, it's, it's, it's with us, is kind of the idea. Turn your Bibles to Joel 1.15. Joel 1.15, I'm going to show you how he uses near elsewhere. Joel 1.15, now remember as we're reading Joel 1.15, this is about the judgment of the locusts. And I'll explain why that's important. Joel 1.15 Joel says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So here's the question we have to wrestle with. How could the day of the Lord be near in Joel's day in the 9th century B.C.? And how could the day of the Lord be near, and if I'm representing Joel correctly, meaning it's occurring in the future, still in our future? Well, what Joel understood was that the locust plague was a near-term manifestation of the day of the Lord, like a down payment that showed that God would one day be good for the, the ultimate day of the Lord. So remember our concept of the near and the far. What happened the prophet's day in the near would foreshadow what would happen one day in the far. So the locust judgment really was a manifestation of the day of the Lord, designed to show that just because you were a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not mean that God was pleased with you. If you lived in idolatry, if you lived in unbelief, he would judge you. In the same way, in the future day of the Lord, all those who don't have faith in Jesus Christ are going to be put down as well. So again, Joel uses near for being at hand. It's here. It's upon us. That's how he's using it. Now, we come to the cosmic disturbance. Notice verse 15, the sun, moon, grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. This is a phrase that occurs in the book of Revelation. Now, I gave you a homework assignment, and the first part of the homework assignment was to look up all references regarding the sun, moon, or stars being affected in Revelation. Does anyone want to share what they came up with? How many times there's cosmic disturbances? And don't worry, we'll just kind of work through it ourselves together, but 
If someone wants to share their findings, that would be, would be great. Otherwise, I can oh, Yeah, Eric. You brave soul. <laughs> Carly's coming good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're putting your objection in early, okay. Well, well, no, actually my wife counted them too, but we did not cheat. I counted mine and yeah. she counted. And so I wanted, I, I felt that, that what we wanted was the sun and the moon and the stars. In oh, other words, okay. All, all of gotcha. them. Gotcha. So she, she had ore and she had a whole bunch more than I did. Okay. But I had at the sixth seal, Revelation six twelve through 13. Bingo. Yep, you got it. Sun, that. black, moon like blood, stars fell to earth. Yeah. Uh, seventh seal, and that's in seventh seal, the third trumpet. That's Revelation eight ten. A great star fell from heaven. Now, I, I accept, I, oh, that's not really all of them, so I kind of I cheated. I mean, I didn't cheat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I sort of expanded there. Yeah. But the, the really the two big ones, just yeah. two that I found, the first, the one that I just mentioned in the sixth seal, Revelation six twelve through six thirteen, and then uh, the seventh seal, fourth judgment, Revelation eight twelve, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars struck by, yeah. so they were darkened. Yeah, I found those two. Absolutely, that had all. Very good. Well, there's probably very some good. more that people found, but I, you know. No, it's very good. I, I agree with you. That they're, they're, they're there. Absolutely, they're there. Yeah, Brian. Very good. I had one more. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I have a couple more too, but don't oh, worry okay. about it. Yeah. I had I had Revelation twelve one, okay. where it was just the appearance of the woman in the uh, sky. Okay. Okay, with the uh, 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 sun. It's Israel, right? Yep. With yep. The, 12 the sun tribes. called with yeah. the moon at her feet and the twelve yep. star crown. Right. And I had that, and then like. Uh, like Freddie, there I had uh, I had another one, but it, it it didn't include all of them, so I I, I stayed away from that. But you that, that's all right. And you know what, my my instructions probably weren't clear too. I I think that any disturbance and the one that you had mentioned with the star coming down, I think that is a um, you, you could argue that that's a cosmic upheaval. Um, it's just I think that that's probably more like a. Um, an asteroid or a, a comet. So I didn't include that one. But let me just put up the ones that I had. I have the sixth seal where you have the sun, moon, and stars talked about. I have the fourth trumpet, Revelation 8.12. Now let me read Revelation 8.12. Well, let me read Revelation 6.12 first. This is the sixth seal. So it says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. So you have reference to the sun and moon there. Here's the fourth trumpet, Revelation 8.12. It says, The fourth trumpet sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it in the night in the same way. So right away we see that, yes, there's cosmic disturbances at the beginning of the 70th week, but it continues on. Now, why is that important? Well, when you look at the pre-wrath view, they believe that this reference in Joel 3.15 is the same one that Jesus is making in the Olivet Discourse, and they believe the only one it's referring to is the sixth seal. They place the sixth seal right around the midpoint, and therefore they argue that's the beginning of the day of the Lord. Okay, The problem with that is what we're seeing is that there's actually other cosmic disturbances. So that first one in the sixth seal does not exhaust them all. And what you're going to see in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, he's talking about a cosmic disturbance 
that happens immediately after the tribulation of those days. So we'll be wrestling with what are those days. I'm convinced those days is the whole 70th week of Daniel. So that means it has to be another one at the end. Are you with me? That's the logic I'm going with. So I don't, that's why I'm showing you I don't think the pre-wrath data holds. But notice there's another cosmic upheaval, the fifth trumpet, Revelation 9-2. This is where you have the demons coming up out of the abyss. The bottomless pit, the smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Now, to be fair, it's not an effect on the sun itself, but it's that it's so obscured because the smoke is so great. So this is not just your neighbor getting careless with his hot dogs and franks on a barbecue. This is some smoke, right? This is pretty serious smoke coming up out of the abyss. So I thought it it would count as a cosmic disturbance. The final one, I think, is the fourth bowl, where you have the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it changes. The sun actually changes. It ends up scorching men, it says. Okay, now there's another one, and I want to talk about this reference that Jesus makes. This is an exceedingly important reference, and once we get this concept down, we're going to see that Jesus and Joel were saying the same thing, and it's at the end of the 70th week. So it's occurring, let me pull up my pointer, it's occurring here. Okay, let me show you why. Notice here, in Matthew 24, 29, he's talked about the entirety of the 70th week, And then he comes to this conclusion, a preliminary one. He says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall. Well, where are we getting that or where is he getting that? That's from Joel 3.15. But notice he says that, well, they'll fall from sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. He's claiming, that is Jesus, that it happens immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, the term immediately, ethuos, means just that. It means there's no intervening time. You can't argue that after the 70th week of Daniel, there's going to be a period of time. No, it's immediately after those days. The next thing that happens right at the end of the 70th week is this, this occurrence. Now, how do we know? This is the big issue that we have to wrestle with. What are the tribulation of those days? Here's where most of evangelicalism goes wrong. Listen carefully. Most of evangelicalism takes the tribulation of those days as referring to the church age. Are you with me? That's the problem. But once you realize the tribulation of those days that Jesus is referring to is the 70th week. I always use this because it's a parenthesis, the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. Once you realize that's those days that he's referring to, all of a sudden, all of this clears up. So he's saying that immediately after the 70th week, you're going to have another cosmic disturbance as Christ comes at this final battle. The sun, and that's exactly what Joel is saying in Joel chapter 3, where all the enemies are where? They're surrounding Jerusalem. That's the, the final battle. That's the idea that's being brought forth. Now, how do we know, in fact, Jesus is talking about the 70th week of Daniel when he talks about those days? Well, let's look at the parallel between Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. Do you remember the question the disciples ask? In Matthew 24, verse 3, they ask him the question, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What Jesus does is he answers the second question first. So from Matthew 24, 4, all the way to Matthew 24, 35, Jesus talks about signs. 
and all of the signs are inside the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Now, how do we know that? Because notice in Matthew 24, 5, he talks about false Christ. Jesus focuses on the 10. Remember, there's going to be 10, and then the Antichrist becomes out of them. Jesus focuses on the many, but John in Revelation 6 focuses on the one. But the focus is on the false Christ, the Antichrist. Notice in Matthew 24, 6, Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars. What do you have in Revelation 6, 3 through 4? The second seal, you have warfare. Peace is taken from the earth. In Matthew 24, 7, Jesus talks about famines. That's the third seal. Revelation 6, 5 through 6. Matthew 24, 8, Jesus says these are the beginning of birth pangs. Why does he say birth pangs? Because a woman's labor comes suddenly. All of a sudden, they come, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and then all of a sudden, what is born is the baby. The 70th week of Daniel is depicted that way. The birth pangs of the Messiah. They begin light, and they get worse and worse and worse until the Messiah is birthed, the messianic age. That's how they're depicted. They're depicted that way in Isaiah 13, 8. That's where Jesus is getting it from, the birth pangs. Okay? Now, why is all of this important? Because it's referring to the same time period. Revelation 6 is talking about the worst time period ever that's still in our future. Remember, when you get to the fourth seal, how many do you lose? How many people? A quarter of the Earth's population. Have we ever lost a quarter of the Earth's population? No. And we never will until the 70th week of Daniel. So if Revelation 6 is talking about the worst time period ever, which has never occurred and never will during the church age, and Jesus is talking about the same time period, well, Jesus and John are talking about the same time period, namely the 70th week of Daniel. Does that make sense? But let me show you the coup de grace. Jesus summarizes Matthew 24 all the way to verse 14. He brings you to the end of the 70th week. Notice this. Don't let this go. Don't glaze over. Don't fall asleep. Whatever you have to do, pop two here. Okay? Matthew 24, 15. I'll prove it to you that Matthew 24 is about the 70th week of Daniel. I'll just prove it to you. Matthew 24, 15. Jesus gives a summary. He's got, he, he recapitulates. He goes back to the midpoint now. Remember, Matthew 24, 14. He's brought you all the way through the entirety of the 70th week. Now he brings you, by way of recapitulation, back to the midpoint. Notice Matthew 24, 15. Everyone look there. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, even tells you the reference, Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then it even says parenthetically, let the reader understand. That's Daniel 9.27. That's the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. This is not the church age. Are you with me? So Jesus couldn't be any clearer. So why is evangelicalism not reading that carefully and saying, well, the tribulation of those days, that's the church age, and then we go on. It's not the church age. After the tribulation of those days, that's the 70th week of Daniel. And what happens is the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, just as Joel the prophet said in Joel 3 at that final battle. Jesus and Joel are teaching the same thing. And so... Let me show you the 70th week. Think about it this way. Matthew 24, 21 through 22, Jesus says, this is the worst time period ever. Now, I'm just going to go back to what I just showed you. Why is it the worst time period ever? Well, one is because the Antichrist comes. How many know that it's not a good day when he comes on the scene? In fact, in Revelation 12 that you guys were alluding to, that's the whole point of Revelation 12 is it shows that he's thrown down. 
So hell really comes to earth. He, he's, he's the false, incar- there's a false incarnation. There's a true incarnation of God in Christ, truly man, truly God. There's going to be a fake incarnation of Satan in the Antichrist. And he brings hell to earth. He's thrown down. And that's why everything gets so bad. That's why it's the beginning seal. Everything gets worse from there when he comes. Well, then you have peace taken from the earth. Doesn't Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5 that the day of the, the, day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety? Well, they're not going to have peace and safety at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Therefore, the day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the 70th week. Third seal, famine. You have famine upon the earth. It's so bad, by the fourth seal, a quarter of the earth dies. How bad was World War II? We lost 3% of the world's population. World War II was the worst war that the world has ever experienced. But this beginning time period will be eight times worse than that. And that's what Jesus calls the beginning of birth pangs. Okay, so here's why I'm saying this. If these are the first seal judgments in Revelation 6, well, let's back up. In Matthew, Jesus is talking about the same time period. Are you with me, logically? Jesus is talking about the same time period. And we can conclude that this is the worst time period ever. Well, then it can't be occurring during the church age because the church age isn't the worst time period ever. Are you with me? It's just that simple. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, that unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. In fact, um, can someone read Matthew 24, 21 and 22? Because he also talks about since the beginning of the world, there's never been tribulation like this. Does someone have that reference? Eric, you got it? Good. (laughs) Sorry, Carly. You're doing a good job. Uh, let's see. What was, uh, yeah, uh, 21 through 22, is that what you wanted? Yeah. Okay, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Ah, so that's the 70th week of Daniel. That's the summary. It's so bad, unless those days be cut short, no one would survive. I just have another comment, yeah. too. Uh, with Daniel's 70, 70th week, you know, Daniel prayed, and he wanted to know what was the fate of his people. Yes. See, that's what he asked for. And so that explains that gap between the 69th week of Daniel exactly. and the 70th. The church age is the gap. Absolutely. And that's... That, I think further strengthens your argument. Absolutely. It's inherent in the text itself. That's right. Amen. In in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Absolutely. So let me give you the summary then of Matthew 24, 29. What we've concluded is, yes, there are multiple times in which you have cosmic upheavals and disturbances. The sixth seal does not exhaust them. But what's interesting is this phrase, immediately after the tribulation of those days, means that the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, there's another one that's not alluded to in the book of Revelation. And that's occurring at the end. And that's the one that Jesus is referring to. It's the one that Joel is referring to. Okay? So the 70th week of Daniel is characterized by cosmic upheaval. But the final one will occur as the nations surround Jerusalem. It begins with the sun, moon, and stars being affected, six seal. It ends with the sun, moon, and stars being affected at the battle of Armageddon and the battle of the Kidron Valley. Okay, so that's very important that we see that after the tribulation of those days, the end of the 70th week of Daniel, 
That's when Joel 3 is talking about. Joel chapter 3 and Jesus and Matthew 24, 29 are talking about the same battle. Yes, Scott. So I was just going to comment that uh, the uh, elect that the days are shortened for are those that got saved after the tribulation, right? Yeah, you know, it would be the elect. Whoever comes to faith in inside the 70th week of Daniel, absolutely. Yep, there will be people. In fact, that's why when Jesus writes the Olivet Discourse, a lot of people ask, well, how is that applicable to the church if we're not living during that time period? Well, there's a lot of things that were written in the scriptures that you and I didn't live through. But they're edifying to us because we see that God is going to be faithful to his promises. All the promises in the Old Testament really focus on this time period in which Christ brings the kingdom. And all of a sudden we see, yeah, he's going to be faithful to it. That's a big encouragement. But I like to challenge people who say, well, if it doesn't apply to us now, well, then it can't really be true the way you're interpreting the passage. Well, think of it this way. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, when you see these things, those who are in Judea flee to the hills. Why does he single out Judea? Well, because the 70th week of Daniel, there's going to be a battle around Israel. Notice he doesn't say, you in Minnesota, get to Buck Hill. All right? So how do we apply that and say, well, I have to apply it. It has to apply to the church now. What do I say? How does that apply when he says, those who are in Judea flee to the hills? How does that apply to us here and now? Well, the way it applies is I say God is going to be faithful to bring all of his promises. And just as he foretold, the nations will surround Israel and Jerusalem and attack them, but he will come at the end and save them and bring his kingdom. I can say, praise God, he's faithful to his promise. But if you say that applies to Christians during the church age, I don't know how you apply that. Okay, so when you see these things, where do you go? The the people in Judea go to the hills. Where do you go? And so ask your pre-wrath friends, ask your post-tribulationists, what do you do? How do you apply that? Do you go to Buck Hill or is that not good enough? You got to go to the Rockies? How do you apply that? And I'm, not, I'm just saying, if we want to go down that road, so the way it applies is that we see God is faithful to his promises. That's how it applies. And we should say, amen, that's, that's good enough for me. Right? So that's how it applies. So I want you to see then, dear ones, the scriptures talk with one voice. Joel, written in the ninth century, was talking about the same battle that Christ is. And once you see the data, it's not that confusing. Yes, the 70th week of Daniel has a lot of cosmic upheavals, but it it's, begins with the sun, moon, and stars being affected, six seal, and it culminates with the sun, moon, and stars being affected at the end of it all, when Jesus returns. That's what characterizes the 70th week of Daniel. Turn your Bibles, if you will. Let's just show you how Isaiah talked about this, and I'll conclude with this verse. Isaiah 13, 10. Isaiah 13, 10. Now, Isaiah 13, the reason I want you to turn there is because Isaiah links this to the throwing down of Babylon. And that, of course, is going to be rebuilt in the book of Revelation. Isaiah 13, 10. And this is about the future day of the Lord, the same battle that was just described. Isaiah says in 13.10, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. And then from Isaiah 13.10, all the way, I think, around verse 17, if I remember, you have the description of this future day of the Lord. 
Well, then in the last part of the chapter of Isaiah 13, Isaiah says, now here's how you know that, I'm paraphrasing, God is good for that. And he talks about Babylon in his day would be destroyed by the Medo-Persians. So the near destruction of Babylon by the Medo-Persian Empire in the prophet's day, the near, was evidence that one day God would judge the future Babylon in our day, in the future day of the Lord. There's the near and the far. That's how prophecy works. There's always a near and the far. There was a near term in Joel's day. There was a locust judgment. Near term manifestation day of the Lord. One day a future manifestation. A near and the far. Yeah, Bob. They show that it includes everything. Verse 9. Yeah. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with rage and burning anger to make the earth a desolation and destroy the sinners on it. Yes. So that's looking all the way to the judgment. Amen, amen. And so these things are interspersed within the Old Testament text. Yes. As, as I said earlier, Jesus reading just part of the Isaiah 61, the part fulfilling his day. Exactly. The first advent. The day of desolation is coming later. Beautiful. Well said. And I love that verse you just quoted because um, he's going to wipe out the inhabitants of the earth. Right. The term uh, earth there, tevel, means the inhabited earth. There's two terms that are often used for land or earth in Hebrew. One is um, eretz. I always want to say ha-eretz. How many have ever heard of ha-eretz? That's actually a newspaper in Israel. It's called The Land. Okay, so it has the definite article, ha-eretz is land, the land. So it's not. So oftentimes when it, the land of Israel is referred to in the Hebrew scriptures, ha-eretz is referred to. And it can have a wider meaning. It can be broader than that. But typically, it refers to the land of Israel. But tevel is used when the whole inhabited world is being referred to. And that's why we know in Isaiah 13:9 the judgment that's coming isn't one just upon the land of Israel, but it's a universal judgment. The whole inhabited world is going, going to be infected in the future day of the Lord. So that's why we know Isaiah 13.10 is about the same judgment Joel write, wrote about 150 years earlier. The same judgment Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24.29. My prayer for you this morning is that you see the scriptures aren't really that confusing when you put the data together. And they really do speak with one voice about these things. These things can be clearly understood. They don't have to be a mystery. We can really understand them. We just have to be careful readers. Bob has been showing us for years and years that we have to be careful readers of Scripture. One of the ways we do that is understanding in this text, what does it mean after the tribulation of those days? If you don't get those days right, if you think that that's the church age, you're going to be off in left field in eschatology. But once you realize those days is a reference to the 70th week of Daniel, you're cooking with gas. You, 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 you got her nailed. Okay, well, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for helping us to understand these things. I pray for clarity, that we would see that there's no contradictions in your scriptures, Lord, that you would help us to live these things out in the weeks and months and years ahead, that we would be confident that no matter what trials and tribulations that occur here and now, we would be confident that this great reversal will occur, that you're coming to redeem us and to wreak vengeance upon your enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.